Hey everyone, welcome back to another Pink Bike Podcast. This is episode number 70 and it's part two of Mike Kazer and I talking about all the good, bad and strange bikes we've owned over the last 25-ish years of mountain biking. There are some real gems in there. Now if you haven't listened to last week's episode, that's number 69 by the way, press pause on this one and go back to hear about Casimir's classic spooky Junebug hardtail his Iron Horse Sunday that was held together with equal parts Loctite and Prayers, and my Cannondale Forecross and Trek Remedy that were modified way too much for their own good. Zero warranty there, Casimir. Kaz, we also talked about your old RM7 and my giant ATX downhill bike. Both of those bikes, they seem to be competing for honors of who could be the most unreliable if you could if you could ride one of those, would you pick that RM7 again or would you take my ATX out for a lap? Oh, I don't know. I'd probably ride you don't even know. Maybe I'd take the ATX because I've never actually ridden an ATX, so I'd take it out. I know how the RM7 rides. It'd be kind of a fun trip down Terrible. memory lane, but yeah. So <laughs> but maybe yeah, I would pick the ATX just to have a chance to ride that one as well. Yeah. You know what I've always found funny, Kaz, is that in the car world or like even the watch world and all sorts of other worlds, there seems to be like this appreciation for like old classic stuff. And we do have that in mountain biking. There are those people that have, you know, home museums of some really interesting stuff. But where you see people out there driving around in their classic cars and they're being just fine that they shift slower and they have less traction, you don't see many people riding around on old crappy bikes, do you? <laughs> no, yeah. Old crappy bikes are better for like museums rather than riding them. Where like an old car is fun to drive, but old bikes, they're not as fun. I know there's people out there that still ride the old things, but it's yeah. come a long ways in the last 20 years or so. Do you ever think that mountain biking would get to that point where like there's classic classic days we've seen some classic downhill bike race days and stuff but i mean just like in general like you're out on the trail and you see a guy out on you know the old this or the old rm7 and you're like oh yeah you don't think anything of it like they're just out for a classic ride yeah i don't know i mean like i like going to the bike park and seeing all the people still riding those old old bikes you know like oh i remember that bike it's crazy that's still in one piece but it doesn't make me like lust to go ride old bikes all of a sudden yeah on the same hand, I remember a few podcasts ago, we were talking about my old Norco uh, VPS, the original VPS. And I thought to myself, I admitted actually that like if that was still my only bike, 26 inch Gazelotti's, a shiver that was constantly twisted, like you just looked at it and the fork twisted. <laughs> if that was my only bike, I probably wouldn't mountain bike that much. And you were like, ah, well, you know, I think I'd still get out there all the time. So maybe you would, Kaz. I think you're... You're tougher like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think maybe I am tougher than you. That's true. Yeah. I'll go with that. Yeah. I'm tougher than you. Yeah. <laughs> Did I just say that? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. This podcast is off to a weird start already, everybody. <laughs> so everybody listening, let me know if you only had an old classic bike, would you go ride it just as much as you are now? Or would it be a once in a while kind of like, let's take the old classics out for a ride? Now, James and Brian, neither of them are here today. It's just Casimir and I. So Kaz is going to read the news. But as always, make sure to like, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes of me telling Casimir he's tougher than I am. That's right. <laughs> That's not going to happen again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> All right, we'll dig into the news here. We'll start off with a new Ibis XE. So that's a new cross-country bike from Ibis, and that's spelled E-X-I-E, so... Kind of a clever name, XE. Um, it's 
pretty interesting. It's got, you know, modern-ish geometry for cross-country bike. They didn't do a super crazy with making it, you know, crazy slack, crazy long, but it is longer and kind of falls into that, um, yeah, contemporary cross-country bike. But the big news, it's made in the USA. So full-size range, uh, US made. They've got a new facility in uh, Pajaro, California. And so that's something we saw with the Ripley. They started doing that. They made, I think, the extra small sizes for the Ripley, maybe just small. They did one size for that, but now this whole bike is made in the USA. So kind of a neat thing to see from them. Yeah. And they started working on this in 2014. So it took a while to get it off the ground, but now full production, it's ready to, ready to roll. So as far as carbon goes, we know Gorilla Gravity is doing their carbon frames as well in the States, but those are made quite differently. This, the Ibis, they're traditionally manufactured, aren't they? Where Gorilla Gravity is a largely automated process, aluminum rear ends, um, still made in-house, this IBIS setup, it's more traditional hands-on laying down sheets of carbon cas? It is, yeah. Kind of your the way you kind of typically uh, imagine carbon frames being made. But they did take steps to eliminate as many, uh, just to make the process as quick and smooth as possible. So basically, any extra steps were taken out. Um, they had some stats about how they did reduce the amount of time from beginning to end to make a frame. So they're just trying to make it as efficient as possible, you know, to keep the cost down um if you do look at the frame only price or even the complete bike price it is more expensive than asian made bikes it's not you know it's made in the usa and that does come with a cost um, what, what does that cost Kaz? i think the frame alone price is like four thousand seven hundred it's, it's pretty pricey and even i think complete started at, you know seven thousand something us dollar so uh it's not yeah. your you know budget bike but you know yeah. us made does does carry some weight for some people and it's cool to see they're taking that step and, you know, as time goes on, maybe they can bring the price down if they do more. Uh, sure. Do we know if they're going to be moving any other production or doing any other production on U.S. shores, I should say? Uh, I'm not sure. They did say they made sure to state that they are they're not abandoning abandoning their U.S. or their sorry, their Asian facilities. So they'll still be making bikes over in Asia. They've got a good relationship with those factories. So some bikes will come from there, but they are going to keep um, expanding this U.S. side of things, too. So they're kind of doing both. Just, you know, in these days, it probably doesn't help, doesn't hurt to have multiple options to get bikes made. All right. Let's talk about this, the bike itself for just a minute before we move on. 4.4 pounds with a shock. That's pretty light. 100 mils of rear travel. Uh, you could put like a 120 fork on the front. Uh, Kaz, I bet it's sporty. DW Link, no doubting that. It's light. You could fit two bottles in it. What, out of 10, what would you give this thing for its appearance, though? Oh, for oh. Oh, I'm not as big a fan of its looks. In the comments, it seems mixed. I would go on the, I'd not, I just, some of the lines don't really appeal to me, but, you know, that's really judging a book by a cover. I don't think you're supposed to do that, but. Yeah. Yeah. So the looks aren't in, aren't for me, but someone will like it. Yeah, yeah, I like the way that it looks, but hey, I also really like the way the Ripley AF looked, and every single commenter disagreed with me. So, <laughs> what do I know? <laughs> Anyways, Kaz, let's talk yeah. about another new bike with a whole bunch more travel. Yeah, go from fully human powered over to some assistance from motor, and this is going to be the Nuke Proof Megawatt. So, Nuke Proof's first e bike um, wasn't exactly a surprise. There was a little leaked shot a couple days before that ruffled some feathers over there at Nuke Proof, but. Either way, the megawatt is out. Seb Stock got to ride it. Um, basically, takes the existing meta, Mega and puts a Shimano EP8 motor on it. It's 165 millimeters of travel. 
uh, comes as a mullet only. And there's some other tweaks, longer chain stays and kind of the suspension layout to make it work better with that motor and battery. So Kaz, I'm, I don't ride a ton of e-bikes right now. Um, but if I was going to get an e-bike, I think I would want one to be as gr- aggressive as possible. Like all the travel, probably mullet, probably a big battery. W- w- is this kind of what the Megawatt is? It sounds like it. Yeah, exactly. It falls in line with, uh, you know, bikes like say the Turbo Levo or you know something like that. That's just a, yeah, all the travel, all the battery. It has a weight too. I think it's 52 pounds. So Ooh, not super all the light. weight. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you do have a motor. So, but, yeah. um, and you know, Stepstat was impressed. He said it, it rode really well considering the weight. And even just for, you know, e-bikes can tend to ride a, a decent amount different than a regular non-motorized bike, but he was impressed with how much this felt like a, a regular bike. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Since, yeah. since we're on e-bikes, would you, if you were, if you were going to pick a bike an e-bike to be your only bike, would you take one of those lightweight options with like the slimmer, lighter batteries, or would you do that full size route? I'd go full size just for me in the way that I tend to ride e-bikes. I just like having all the power and to be able to kind of, it, it feels more different from mountain biking. Like if I'm on a half power e-bike, I'd rather just ride a regular bike. It, to me, it doesn't seem like that, but there are people that, you know, they don't want that heavier, bulkier bike. They want something that's kind of an in-between. So we're starting to see more of those, but, um, one bike that came out also this week that is not an in-between is the pole Voima. And this is that is how you first, say it? <laughs> I think so. Do you want to say Voima? Voima. Vo- We're not sure. Voima? Yeah, I, th- I think you got it, actually. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll try So that one's V-O-I-M-A. This is the the spelling podcast where we spell words for you. So, oh, um, so the new that poll. That doesn't bode well for me. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> this one's the first EMTB for poll, and it's not just a stamina with a motor on it. This thing's even more of a beast. It's got 190 millimeters, or sorry, yeah, 190 millimeters of travel, a 90 newton meter torque motor, and a 725 watt hour battery. So this is definitely in that bigger, more aggressive category. That is a full-sized e-bike. Is that the same size battery as the Nuke Proof? Um, I think it's a little bit bigger, 725. That's more in line with what you find on that specialized uh, Turbo Levo. I think the Nuke Proof has 600, 625. You know what I like about Pole? They don't give a shit. Did you see this thing, Cass? (laughs) It's wild looking. It looks almost like a crazy 90s like a nineties full suspension bike that went to the future and then came back and got dipped in gold somewhere around their way. Yeah. yeah. I'm, uh, I am intrigued. Like, obviously I have a bit of a soft spot for weird things. And obviously this is a bit of a weird thing. Um, man, I just like that Leo's doing different stuff. He did like a almost 20 minute video explaining a bunch of the tech and stuff. You can, you guys can watch that in the PR interesting stuff. It's still glued together. They've changed the manufacturing process a little bit, but I hope we get one of those Kaz. Yeah, I think it'll be fun and, and wild looking. Definitely, it will attract attention on the trail. Yeah. Um, moving on from bikes, we got some injuries to report. Unfortunately, um, at the French Cup last weekend, Amory Piron and Thibaut Duprello are both injured. Um, Thibaut broke his nose and had some stitches in his tongue, and then Amory bruised like all of his insides. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like Thibaut may be racing the World Cup this weekend. At least he's on track. I'm not sure. He's, he's walking around. He's fine. But Omri's still in the hospital. going to take a little longer to heal up. But luckily, they will both heal. But ouch for both of them. Yeah. there's There's been a whole bunch of injuries lately. Who was the racer that had one of the nuts full out of his sack? <laughs> that was Flo. Flo Payet. Oh. Or Flo Payet. I think I'd say. Payet. Jeez, I'm not sure guys. I say his last name. 
but Guys, yeah, that's please brutal. be more careful. I know. And then this weekend's track looks also very rough and there's like a road gap that everybody's casing and it looks yeah. really, really hard to ride, but yeah, yeah. everyone stays We actually, we have a question about airbags related to all these injuries coming up here. So stay tuned for that. Last weekend, we had the EWS Valdifasa race. It was actually a double header, and the first round went to Richie Rude with the closest margin in EWS history. He won over Jack Maher by only 0.48 seconds, which is pretty wild for a, you know, after almost 30 minutes of racing to have that tight of a margin. That is awesome. Like over all sorts of different terrain, different racers from different countries on vastly different bikes. Less than half a second after over 20-something minutes of racing, Kaz? Like, yeah, jeez. It's crazy. And then that same first round, Isabel Couturier, uh, she won, and that was kind of a good comeback from her. She had a rough off-season. She lost her father, so she wasn't hadn't been riding much for obvious reasons. Um, so it was really cool to see her come in and just stomp down and take the win in that one. Um, so, yeah, good kickoff to that season. And then we also had the other race right after it, so... Second race, same track, but different days. Jack Maher decided he didn't like losing by 0.48 seconds, so he went even faster, and he beat Richie Rude. So Jack's first EWS win. Also cool to see another person coming over from downhill and, and taking the win there. So. Even even though he on a bike that's way too short for him. I know. How does he ride it? It's impossible. <laughs> we'll get to that in a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then uh, yeah, in that same race, Melanie Pujin won. For the women and Morgan Shar got second place. So tight racing there too. Um, overall, yeah, just great to have racing back in general. So, And then the final piece of news, we had Ben Cathro kicked off his new coaching series on Pink Bike. It's called How to Bike. And I know it seems cliche to launch a YouTube coaching series since there's 10,000. Are 10, you taking 000. notes on that, Kaz? Yeah, always. I, I watch it ride. twice every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this series, it's not just a How to Wheelie 101 because there's 10,000 videos about that and say 9,999 are not useful, but Ben's are useful. He's got a pretty cool approach to coaching. So if you want some tips, no matter if you're a beginner or a pro person, yeah, check it out. It's something special when someone knows how to teach. So you, you, you and I have ridden together, Kaz, and you know, like when I'm trying to like show somebody how to do something or like encourage somebody my style isn't the style that people generally learn from. No, yours is like aggressive, abusive parent style where you just yell and scream until someone does well, it just do or it. just runs away. Yeah. I don't understand scary. why you're not doing it. Yeah, flashbacks. You call that a wheelie? Yeah, so Ben yeah. is definitely a better coach than you and than yeah. me as well because, yeah, coaching for me, I would not, it's not my uh, desired profession. It's hard. Teaching yeah, people how to ride. So it's hard. Like, and if they crash in front of you, it's so nerve wracking. I'm not yeah. good at that. So, yeah. so thanks, way, Ben. New video up. Good job, Ben. Yeah. Hey, one last thing before we move on from newscasts. There was a really interesting article that you wrote about a patent for a Fox Dropper post. Can you just tell me, give me a little blurb on that? Yeah. So basically Fox patented uh, a dropper post that looks like it should be able to go up and down with the push of a button. So most posts these days, you have to wait them for them, them to go down. But this had a little it's motor. holy grail. <laughs> I know, a little motor. And then they also had um, parts, parts of the description that said it could be combined with either a heart rate monitor or GPS. Uh, it could be voice activated. So all kinds of kind of futuristic sounding things. Potentially, if your heart rate reached a certain point, it would drop or raise or... Um, that's the thing that most people in the comments glommed on to, but for me personally, I don't need any of that stuff, except I want one that drops when I push the lever. So that would be cool if that comes out. Yeah. 
To be fair, they're probably um, they probably have those patented to cover off possible options that another company might come up with. That's part of patents. We're not we're probably not going to see a dropper post that's activated by a heart rate anytime soon, are we? <laughs> no, probably not. But you know, it could be some. They've got some other patent about it. Almost sounded like e racing. Like who knows? Maybe it ties into your Zwift, and then the dropper moves up and down. Ooh. or something got my yeah. attention <laughs> i know some swift so yeah they're, they're working on something um but yeah don't hold your breath waiting for the the voice activated heart rate controlled dropper but some piece of that technology will probably trickle out it would be needed it would almost make it like an active seat post sort of like active vehicle suspension the seat posts could use gps coordinates or know what's happening with your body and anyways we don't need that <laughs> yeah no we don't yeah <laughs> let's let's move on to questions and our first one comes from underneath the bike check on norco's new range it's the gehrig twins and the question is from ned's dead he says, I'm curious how Norco decides if a bike gets an aluminum chainstay or a carbon one. Uh, on a bike like this, he says he thought they would have gone aluminum because uh, presumably it would be more reliable, but they went carbon fiber. On their optic, the lightweight bike, they went aluminum. So Casimir, what factors come into play when a company is deciding on making carbon chainstays or aluminum chainstays? Uh, there's a lot. I mean, one thing is sometimes time, like sometimes it's a little quicker just to toss an aluminum back end on a bike, get it out the door. Um, or if you're already designing the whole front end in carbon, it's, you know, they want to have it a cohesive package. So they give it a, a back end to match this, this frame in particular, the range has some unique shapes that would be pretty hard to achieve in aluminum. Um, the aluminum, you could make it in aluminum. Obviously they had a mule, but that mule was super heavy and super ugly. So, um, yeah, to make this thing look the way they wanted to, they went with carbon, um what else would be a reason yeah i think that's mainly it just kind of weight timing cost reliability i'll kind of play into what you end up with on the back of a bike yep. and we've had companies uh tell us i've i've asked them why is this new carbon bike have aluminum chain stays and i've had companies say well we could have done carbon but it would have added like you know 30 percent to the price of the bike and it would have shaved 30 grams or something like that. In other words, it's just not worth it sometimes. Yeah, exactly. And this one, you know, the weight wasn't as much of a factor as is obvious by the uh, the final weight of this bike on the scale. But I do think that the shapes of that rear end would have been harder to, to make happen with aluminum. Yeah. All right, guys, I have an interesting question next. This one's from Tade639. This was posted underneath the last podcast. This is where you should be posting your questions if you want them asked, underneath the podcast articles. So Tade639, he says, when you review a bike, are you allowed to talk about reviews from other sites? I think it would be awesome to compare what you saw compared to them, potentially just doing it in the podcast. So Kaz, You've just reviewed a bike. There's lots of other reviews out there. Do you ever include any feedback from that review or even reference some other outlet's review on that bike? No, I can't say I've ever done that. I mean, one one thing that plays in with this one, a lot of times a review comes out on the day a bike launches or, or occasionally, so then you wouldn't have even had a chance to read any reviews. Um, and in general, we try to be you know, one of the earliest outlets with a full review. So we try to get the bikes as early ahead of time as we can to get a bunch of time in on them. So we haven't read reviews when we write our reviews, you know, and I don't really like to read. Let's see if something has already been reviewed that I'm reviewing. I don't usually read that review. Um, just so that my words are my own and my impressions are just based on solely what I experienced. 
Yeah, totally. And I think we'd find that's true across the board. Somebody from Vital isn't reading a PB review before they work on their review and vice versa and NSMB and all the other websites and magazines. Another thing to take in mind is the terrain that it's tested on, sometimes even more than the rider that's testing the bike. An example of this would be that Breezer Repack, Kaz, that I had. I mean, that was many years ago now. That was like a traily all-mountain, I think it was like a 150, 100-millimeter bike. And here for me, man, I could not get that thing to keep from bottoming it out. Even when I ran, like, I think I was down to like 15% sag, and it would just bottom out off of everything. After my review was posted, I read some other reviews. People had tested that bike in other less aggressive places, and they never mentioned any issues whatsoever. So it's terrain dependent. And when that is the case, I try to emphasize that, that like, hey, this bike is you know doing something here, but this is where we live and the terrain is like this. So, And I think if we do that, then the readers can hopefully keep that in mind. And if they want to see how the bike performs on, you know, in California, they would read a different review. In Europe, they would read a different review. So, Yeah, uh, we're open to questions too. Like, I mean, I do look at reviews after I've written mine. I like to see if someone else had the same experience. But um, yeah, if people have specific questions, they can just drop them in the podcast. This would definitely be a better place for us to answer. You know, if someone says like, hey, Vital thought this bike did this and you thought this, how come? We can answer them here, but it's not something you'll see in the written review just because of how it all works. Yeah, for sure. Um, our next question, this is from Garland Photography. He wants to know, Kaz, how far back in time do you think you'd have to go to win a World Cup if you could take a brand new 2021 bike with you? Probably pretty far. People have been fast yeah. for a long time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I think the 90s somewhere in there. But it can't be one of those gravel fire road races because I just really don't like going super fast on gravel fire roads, even with the fanciest bike ever. So yeah. maybe like Mount Snow 95. But even yeah. then, I probably wouldn't win. Somebody probably just went crazy back then. Yeah, those old videos, it's just like today. Like video doesn't do it justice. So when we see Casimir, those people sliding down like the muddy double tracks in Mount Snow in like 1993, you know, on a super vdh or something i'm not convinced that we could just show up there on a 2021 bike today and do much better but maybe i'm wrong i don't know i think we do all right but yeah it's not magic like those guys are still fast like if you're racing steve pete was just as fast that like he's been faster than me forever so (laughs) like i don't know (laughs) that's a good line yeah Yeah. 100 percent agree All right. Uh, our next question is from Sopyras3. This is underneath. He commented on the article about Amory Pirion being airlifted from the French DH Cup. What are, people th- what are people's thoughts on the time frame when motorcycle and skiing type airbags come to DH and mountain bike racing? Okay, let me rephrase that. Basically, he wants to know if those inflatable safety vests that you see in uh, MotoGP racing and skiing would ever come to fruition in mountain biking if they make any sense at all. I don't think so, Kaz, because a couple factors. One, they're pretty big and bulky. Two, they're very expensive, like $700 and up. Uh, Three, they have to be recharged as soon as they go off. And also, mountain bikers crash all the time. And sometimes it's a huge crash and we don't get hurt. Sometimes it's a little crash and I break both my wrists, you know? Like, yeah. Do you you know those things I'm talking about, eh? Yeah, I haven't really looked much into them for MotoGP. I think I've seen them. But yeah, I can imagine that 
yeah, the weight and all that. And like you said, people crash a lot. I know in the last EWS, Jesse Melm had crashed four times in one of his runs and he still ended up finishing fourth. But like if he, this, if he had this technology, he'd be like encased in some inflatable thing partway down the run and want to keep riding, but couldn't. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd like to see things get safer and safer, but there's always a balance and I don't know if this will make its way over into the mountain bike world. Yeah. So I don't think that's the answer, but you never know. Uh, we've got one last question. This is on Jack Moore's bike check. K Sylvie 10 says shorter wheelbase, steeper head tube angle. Look at that seat tube angle. It's only got 170 millimeters of drop. K Sylvie 10 says, Kaz, his bike should be completely unrideable. And then he just went and won. So the background behind this is that Jack is a bit over six feet tall, I think. His bike that he's riding and winning on is a 461 millimeter reach. So Kaz, what other racers are known for their more traditional preferences? And is the answer almost all of them? Yeah, I mean, racers tend to be more conservative than a lot of people would think. You know, if they've started training on a bike, especially if they've trained on something in the off season, um, the next season, they tend to stick with that bike throughout the whole thing. You don't see a lot of racers switching setups just because they spent so much time dialing that in. Even if something might be a little faster, we saw that with like with 29 inch wheels, a lot of people were hesitant to make the change until they'd had a whole off season of testing before switching to 29 inch wheels. So for Jack, I mean, it, I know he's ridden both and he's even said that an XL would probably fit him better, but you know, the strive is what he's racing on. They've done some changes. They put a little, um, adapter, a a cup underneath the head tube to give it a slacker head angle. You're right. It only has a 170 mil dropper, but SRAM also doesn't make an axis dropper longer than 170 millimeters. Hey, Jack, just put a quick release seat post clamp and then you could just get off and lower it the extra 30 mils. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and also like the courses they're, they're riding over there. People always think that we're, and let's see how to phrase this, but the EWS courses, especially the ones in Europe are super weird. And, I don't know if there's one particular bike that does best, but I'd say if you had to pick between going super long and slack and a little steeper and shorter, I would go steeper and shorter for what they're riding over there. The, some of them repurposed hiking trails, just strange Euro turns. We got to like nose pivot through them. So, um, you know, here in North America, we're a little more spoiled. We've got some more purpose built mountain bike trails, a little more open. All those and flow you, trails. Sure. Your flow trails that you're riding, <laughs> but even just <laughs> in general, you know, compared to a hiking trail built in world war one for, whatever and to what we have trails built in the last 20 years it's a little different so um yeah it obviously works for jack it'll be interesting to see what he rides next year i would also argue that what you and i need to enjoy some gnarly steep ass trail isn't what jack might need like we would feel com more comfortable on a bike that's way longer maybe a little slacker where jack has enough skill to still go fast as shit on the slack on the steeper, slightly shorter bike, possibly. Yeah, exactly. Plus he has like bonus suspension because he's eight feet tall and he's got those long arms and legs. He can just move around. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it works. Well, Kaz, I think that, uh, I think the Jack's bike that's apparently way too short, but still miraculously works is a perfect segue into our chat today about some of the sketchy bikes that you and I have owned and ridden over the last couple decades, decades, so I said it at the start of this show, but last week's show covers the first half of Casimir and I's bike history, and there's some real sketchiness in there. So go listen, that RM7 and the spooky June bug that Casimir still wishes he has, the ATXDH that I eventually sold, I think, for 50 bucks. I regret that. 
But for part two, we're getting a little more modern and a bit less suspension. There's a whole bunch of hardtails on my list that starts around the year 2000. Well, it looks like Casimir went from downhill bikes that rattled apart to some pretty dialed, shorter travel machines in the same time period. And Kaz, I want to start in 2014, you were riding a Kona Process 153. I remember this is at the same time that the 111 was out and you and I... Every time we talked back then, we were like, man, that 111, holy shit, is it good. But you ended up buying yourself a 153 instead. Why is that? I wanted something with a little more travel. I really did like the 111 a lot, but um, I knew just my riding style. And I wanted something I could take to the bike park. That was kind of, I usually have one bike that's sort of my one bike to do it all. And so um, that year back in 2014, I thought the 153 would be a good option. It had 27.5 inch wheels, which... They're still fine. So, yeah, I know. That's why I don't have it anymore. <laughs> yeah, but, you just know, that makes bike, so many people mad. <laughs> they're very mad. No, they're all riding mullets now. They're yeah. halfway there. <laughs> no, you know, it was a good, solid little tank of a bike. It didn't hold a water bottle, but the geometry is pretty modern for the time. A little longer front center. Um, question. Question for yes. you. Back then, when you bought that bike, it not holding a water bottle, was that a consideration at all? Or was it just like, oh, I like this bike and I wear a backpack, so whatever? I think it was a partial consideration, but not like it would be today. Back then, I think I'd still, I mean, I, I know I still wore a backpack once in a while. Um, and so that, it worked all right. But definitely today, I wouldn't buy a bike without the ability to hold a water bottle. Just because there's so many good ones that do hold them. So there's no reason to not. Yeah. What What did you like most about that bike? And why was it the front derailleur? Yeah, that was my favorite. I could just shift all the time. The noises that it made, the rattling. Such a wide range. (laughs) Yes, such a wide range. Eagle who? (laughs) (laughs) I know, it's wild to think that. I mean, 2014 doesn't seem that long ago, but then you look and you're like, oh, I had a front derailleur and all this stuff. It was like, it was getting there. But um, yeah, so at the time, that bike was a pretty modern bike and low standover. Did a lot of good things. Um, Solid up well. Just solid, yeah. Kind of overbuilt, you'd say. The C tube gusset it was super ugly. I remember that, but yeah, if we're talking about looks, <laughs> not the <laughs> it's like almost there, but not quite. But um, yeah, so a solid bike. I think I ended up selling that to a buddy and getting something else. But it did its job. No major issues with it. No broken parts, which is always good. Yeah. Well, one last thing before we move on to the next bike. Do you remember dropping chains, like chains falling off, or the chain being super loud, or anything like that? Not really. I mean, if the chain was loud, I usually put some mastic tape on like the bottom part of that front derailleur to quiet it yeah. down. Um, and it was a reliable bike overall. Yeah. Yeah. Overall kind of like almost boringly reliable at that for me at that time. I think, oh, derailleur hangers. I feel like I think I broke a lot of derailleur hangers on that. I think then they had like a run of super brittle ones, it seemed like. So I remember snapping derailleur hangers. That was the main issue. Right, should we dig into one of your bikes? You get some weird ones. Your bikes not, are weirder that's than mine. what we're here to I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> your bikes are weirder. Mine are kind of more normal. I guess it matches our personalities. But the, uh, I guess you had those hardtails. You had a run of some oddball hardtails. I don't know how far back we want to go, but should we go? You had a DMR sidekick? I had a few DMR sidekicks because they were, they had like built in suspension in the frame, but the rebound was super slow. You had to basically <laughs> pull it back. <laughs> yeah. Those DMRs, I had so much fun on those, man. This was back in the time when I was living with my buddy Wayne 
And uh, we would spend so much time just messing around on hardtails, even around town. Like we were mountain biking all the time on these bikes. But then we would just pump the tires up super hard. We'd go to the skate park and we were learning, you know, how to jump over the quarter and how to jump to manual and like all sorts of that kind of stuff that you would eventually translate to the trail calves. And I think maybe because I don't have one of those little bikes anymore, I don't ever play around like that much anymore or at all. Like we used to, we, when we would have an hour, we would just go outside and like have a two by four in the ground. And we'd be like, can you bunny hop 180 without hitting it, you know, or all sorts of stupid little challenges. But what year was that DMR? Is it like 2008-ish, 2010? No, that was in the early 2000s. Like that oh, might have okay. been... we skipped. Two, All right, yeah. Yeah, that might have been like 2000-ish, 2001, 2002, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they replaced this shitty club roost hardtail, this aluminum frame that I got. I didn't know what I was doing. I just, a rep brought it in and it was like 200 bucks. I was like, oh, my first hardtail, great. <laughs> my first jumping hardtail, I should say. But that didn't work. So I got a couple of these DMRs. Uh, they both bent. Um I finally killed the last one. I cased the Oakley Road Gap at the bottom of Grafton Mesa. I was really tired. I think I had a heat stroke. I didn't know I was going way too slow. I got my front tire onto the landing, though. That counts. Uh, almost. Almost. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it bounced hard me back. Hard not ideal. <laughs> no, it broke my ankles, and it bounced mm-hmm. me back. And I didn't have health insurance, so we just, like, we just drove home. But anyways, I gave him my bent hardtail, and he, he took it to a shop, a machine shop and had a, a guy weld a huge gusset over the front end because it had been pulled out and slackened by like three degrees. And then Oli sent it on that thing, like 60 foot gaps on a bent hardtail. Just, yeah. That's <laughs> good <crazy>. for him. <laughs> yeah. There's always guys like that would come into the shop, be like, oh, my bike broke, but I welded it up. It's good as new. And you're like, oh, please don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, don't. Don't do I don't that. trust but, re-welded bikes, but eh. Yeah. He had no fear. And, you know, yeah. he had no problems with it either. So... Yeah. Um, Kaz, you went the other direction, though. I was going to, like, sketchy hardtails. This is obviously way back in the early 2000s. You, in 2017, so a very different time frame, now we're talking about, sorry, 2015, the Santa Cruz Nomad. Yeah, so I should say that I did have, I always had a hardtail dirt jumper through like the time you had one, like early 2000s yeah. and even now. And you now, still I always, do, don't you? I still do. Yeah, I always have yeah. one. Just I like pump tracks and dirt jumping once in a while. Um, you ever go jibbing around town? Not so much jibbing, but on my way to the pump track, if I'm on the hardtail, it definitely makes you hop around and stuff. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't go down the full like strange BC hardtail with like the monster T up front or anything. I never did that, so that was a you thing miss much Kaz. <laughs> yeah, i know i skipped that <laughs> yeah but yeah i think our, our timelines are like like mine's in the more in the future so yeah you're, you're talking about the 2015 santa cruz nomad which is not that long ago um but yeah the that was first great... gen nomad no it's like the what generation would that be nomad's been around for a while that's not the first gen it's the one that's kind of started looking more like what you expect one to look like today not with a not with a shock right above the bottom bracket but the underneath yeah. the top tube Oh, it's okay. not like, yep. remember the first Nomad was super swoopy, kind of looked like it melted. That's not this bike. Yeah. This is like when they started looking really good. It's the year, I think it had that Miami Vice paint scheme. They made like oh, a yes. blue and pink one. Yeah. Yep. That's not the one that I had. I got the black one because like bikes look best if they're all black. Um, but yeah, again, another reliable bike. It was great for around here. I raced a Transfervance with that thing, which probably a little more travel than you needed, but that was blind racing. And some how, weird... how much travel was a VP free in 2015? 
This is a Nomad. So it was like... Oh, Nomad, sorry. <laughs> uh, I think it's 160, 165. Yeah. And you would have wanted less for the Trans-Provence. Well, I don't know if it was necessary, but I think it definitely helped me in some of those weird, like, rubbly, strange things. Like, we were talking yeah. about Euro trails before. Trans-Provence had some of the weirdest switchbacks that I've ever ridden. Like, one trail, I didn't even know what to do because they were, like, past 90 degrees and it was a lot just of practice. get off. Like, get off. Yeah, I, Light and your just cigarette. run straight down. <laughs> you just run straight down. You just skip them all and just run straight down. That's so, why yeah. they ride like that over there. I know. It was wild. So uh, that bike was a good companion. Yeah, more than anything, I think that's how I remember that bike is being at that race. So the race yeah. was better than so many things. Yeah. We'll have to do a, a podcast about all the races we've done because we've both done some pretty interesting races and some interesting places in, all over the world. So, yeah. 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 That was a yeah. cool adventure. So, yeah, that bike, same thing. Just... Worked well. I sold it to a buddy who I think it was a little too big for him, but he made the most out of it. And he's a ridiculous rider, so it didn't seem to affect him at all. And Not too big now. That was that was six years ago. Now it's probably too small for him. Yeah, probably. I think, yeah, I don't know he's right. But yeah, he, he's still riding. But yeah, again, another bike that survived me and got passed on to somebody else. So. Do you remember if there was anything that you liked or hated about that particular bike? Was it reliable for you? Yeah, again, I have a, a good track record for reliable-ish bikes. Um, yeah, no, it was pretty good that had like a vivid air rear shock that actually held up um yeah, pretty easy maintenance like they've got the grease port on there back then i think and yeah i don't remember anything breaking yeah, yeah. again just kind of almost another boring bike but really good like it just was solid yeah. and it pedaled pretty well too they maybe not quite as like the new santa cruz bikes are a little bit um you feel less in your feet like if you're riding flat pedals but that bike was yeah it, it pedaled well so i like that for a big bike yeah Let's, I want to stick with you because you moved to something sort of like the, a newer version of that. You moved to a 2017 Trek Slash, kind of made for the same thing as the Nomad, mm -hmm. but a very different bike, isn't it? Yeah, that was different. That Slash was, well, now we're up to 29 inch wheels. So that was the end of my 27, five inch phase. And now we got big wheels. Uh, would would you ever own small wheels again, Kaz? No, I don't know why I would need to. Yeah, yeah, same. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's like once you find the thing that fits you, it's like I don't have to go to the wrong size, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, somebody's very mad again. Good. I don't hate 27 five-inch wheels, people. They're fine. They just don't fit me as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, that Slash was sweet just because it was pretty light, and I got it kind of to be a race bike. I think in my first – I think I raced one of the EWS or some version of the EWS thing on it um, in Whistler. And like the first mm -hmm. time I rode it was at Whistler Crankworks and came away impressed, so – yeah, that bike was good. Um, yeah, it felt fast, felt racy, very stiff frame. Like the paint job was pretty weak. Like it would just flake off everywhere. Got some mm -hmm. chips in it. Um, Is that that factory red one? Yeah, it's bright red. Yeah, yeah. red and white. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at the time, that was kind of one of the slacker 29-inch wheel bikes that you could get. I don't... Can What did you think of that bike suspension, Kaz? I think it worked well. Let me see. This is my brain has so many bikes in it. Sometimes it's hard to like remember how these things rode. But uh, yeah, it wasn't like a compare, coming from the Nomad. I feel like that the Trek wasn't like crazy supple. Like it, it worked. Or not crazy supple. It was like I'm trying to remember this one. I think it was, a, it was a little tricky to find the balance. Yeah, a little hard to find the balance of like bottoming out too easy or it being too harsh. Yeah, but I think I did some tweaking. I think I eventually got to feel pretty good. Did oh, I had knock block, I think. Did oh, I have knock that's block? exactly what I was going to ask. <laughs> See, people, Kaz and I, we are so connected. <laughs> I was about to make fun of knock block and he brought it up. <laughs> yeah, I think it had knock block, which never like 
bothered me, but it didn't, um, definitely didn't need it for anything. Like I didn't understand. I still don't know why they went down that route at the time, but I, I think that one had knock block. No, I just kept it. Like it didn't never really like hindered my turning. I wasn't doing like super, super, um, tight radius uphill turns on it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah. Um, what else did that thing have? Yeah. Knock block kept it in the low setting chip the frame paint i think the c2 bangle for modern times even back then it was a little bit slack but again you know kind of just you learn things as you go but at the time i really liked it and yeah yeah it held up pretty well i think the general consensus back then was was that bike for an enduro bike was fast as hell yeah it just one of those bikes does feel fast like it's stiff pretty light yeah um and again it, at the time it was one of the slackest 20 hours on the market like 65 degree head angle so um yeah worked well for me let's Let's go from that to my run of orange downhill frames. I had a 222, 223, and a 224. Did they ever make a 225? <laughs> they probably did. I think they did. Yeah. <laughs> I knew better then. Not that yeah. those, you know, to be fair, I had zero trouble with those orange bikes. There's nothing to go so, wrong on them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I wanted... I wanted a racy bike. I was racing lots of downhill then. Um, yeah, and built them up like that. I think I built up the 224. I wrote an article about it, a terrible article about it. The 224. It, <laughs> it cost me so much money, Kaz, to get this thing down to 37 pounds. Um, and one of the reasons that I like these is the oranges had a full length seat tube. So Kaz, you'll like this. You're, you're this kind of guy too. This was back when we were doing riding downhill bikes for everything. So I didn't have to use one of those stupid tie-tech double scoper seat posts. I could just lower my seat all the way, raise it all the way up. I had a wide range cassette. Um, the 224 had a avid juicy ultimate master cylinder and carbon levers combined with code calipers. It had single track rims because they were disposable and cheap, NSB free light cranks, uh, MRP carbon fiber chain guide, which was actually really neat because the boomerang would just flex instead of bending when I cased everything. And Kaz, Kaz, it had a flat Chromeg handlebar. Yeah, that's important back then. Back then it was all about getting that front end low. Like we've come the other way. Now everything's high front ends. But now back then, everybody, if you didn't have a flat bar, you weren't cool. It's I really think weird I took my headset wrong. top cap off, Kaz. Yeah, you <laughs> I gotta get weight that half over the, <laughs> the weight over the front wheel. <laughs> I crashed so much. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good idea. Yeah, and there's something else weird with that. I think the whole. I remember I read that article recently when you sent it to me, and there was I was going to make fun of you for so many things, but yeah, definitely that flat bar was the. I think that was the one. You said some things that I'm sure you don't agree with now. Oh God, I said some stupid things in there. It also had a Mojo boxer, so it's a boxer chassis with a mojo damper cartridge that's chris porter from way back in the day and a mojo tuned fox shock with a titanium spring 37 pounds i thought i was a racer boy turns out kaz i never really enjoyed downhill racing i raced downhill for like many many years and looking back i never had fun i was always like super nervous and scared and like ah <laughs> Yeah, downhill races are. I've never. I've done a few downhill races, but yeah, it's not my thing. I like to be able to make mistakes and still not lose. But downhill racing, yeah. when you make a mistake, it's the end of it, and then you have your whole rest of your run to try to and just freak out and you try to go faster and then you just crash. And that's yeah. exactly what I did. I would try too hard and I would blow up. And also, people on the side of the course would make me nervous and like, God, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, you mentioned how much you like the avid juicy modulation. I, I still, <laughs> I still love SRAM's brake modulation. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't miss the juicies though. But <laughs> no, I don't do that. Uh, you don't say good things about uh, what's he got? Yeah, all kinds of things. You're really excited about this bike, paddling it everywhere. Titanium ice bottom bracket, Kaz. Oh yeah, you said you were, <laughs> you talk shit about external bottom brackets and how ISIS was the future. How <laughs> <laughs> you said like hit up eBay and scoop up the ISIS cranks that you can because they're the best. If it yeah, wasn't called ISIS, they would still be around. <laughs> yeah, you didn't like the steel drag and outboard bearings back then. That was hindering. Yeah, they your had they they did have a ton of steel drag and they didn't last any longer because the seals yeah. were also garbage a lot of times. Yeah. At the time, you weren't a Tim Hortons guy either. You talked about going to McDonald's and getting a McFlurry. You hadn't swapped over. <laughs> <laughs> I was Team Mickey D back then. Now I know better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kaz, that was great. I went from that thing to a cove Wait, we should also mention, you had Kenda Cortez tires on that bike. Just on the back. Yeah. That's fast. Yeah, we can go on that. For, for uh, fast rolling. For fast yeah, rolling. Yeah. <laughs> Those were with tubes, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. All right, we can move on now. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> we don't want to go too deep on that one. Kaz, I went from that to a Cove Shocker, which I think I built up with like a Marzocchi Triple Eight tie, Industry Nine wheels, a Cane Creek double barrel. And this was my first dual link bike. And I went from something that was super light and racy to something that weighed, I think it was almost 10 pounds more, but it was so solid. Zero issues on that thing. I don't know if they, they don't make Shockers, do they? Anymore. No, I'm not sure it goes up to these days. Yeah, they kind of like yeah. disappeared. But yeah, at the time, that Shocker was, that was another popular bike around here. Like just kind of tough. Saw that at the bike park all the time. Yeah. And that, that was my last downhill bike, Kaz, that I owned. After that, it was all short travel stuff. Oh, yeah. You just switched right over. Yeah. And tired. I mean, if we, go, if we go to your or back to your list, it's kind of the same thing along your lines. You're not quite a short travel, but you went from longer travel bikes to that come and sell meta tr and to scott ransom yeah sure well some of those are also because i test a lot of longer travel ones so i kind of like having the shorter travel one yeah around but but and yeah we're getting pretty recent now aren't we yeah we're kind of up in the last few years we could yeah i had that i don't know which one you want to talk about let's looks let's talk about that let's talk about that uh ransom yeah so the ransom um i reviewed that bike and i liked parts of it it's pretty light and kind of a more all mountainy, and rather than just like endurance right smash. Now, Brian is looking up right now, being like, "What? What? Something, yeah, the, something doesn't feel right." Feel like, I'm angry about something. All mountain. <laughs> yeah, we're so bringing it back. Kind of like <laughs> it kind of had a nice blend, like super comfy bike to ride. It wasn't crazy stiff, um, the, and just kind of you could do everything. And I, I really like the traction that I could get from that bike. Hey, can I ask you about Twin Lock? Yeah, you can. What, what, what did, did you keep twin lock? What did you do with that twin lock? No, system? I did not take, I took twin lock off everything. So, but if you, that bike, you can't just take it off. Well, no, I, I did, but then I put a different shock on the back. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah. So, so we don't live in the real world, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Twin lock yeah, is, is silly. And I do have a new twin lock bike coming soon. I think that the spark is on the way. So I'm going to be good and not take twin lock off right away. And I'm going to test it with it. But then something might happen. But for this bike, the Ransom, I'd already ridden it with a twin lock. Just not a huge fan. It it doesn't pedal. It's true that it doesn't pedal amazingly. This Ransom at that era didn't pedal amazingly in the full open position. So I put a RockShox Super Deluxe on there and I cut down the um, lockout lever. Like I just cut the lever basically in, in half, trimmed it down, filed it so that I could still access it if I needed to. So it was really stubby, but it did it did fit in the frame. 
Um, so I could flip it to firm to climb if I wanted to and open up to go down. Um, yeah, no more remote lever on there. And that way I could have the fork that I wanted. It wasn't any fit four damper is grip two damper on the Fox fork. And it was a lot. Yeah. I just liked not having all those levers everywhere. I'm not going to lie, but that all makes sense. Like I'm looking at this bike right now, Kaz, a photo of it, and it just looks like it makes sense. It's light. It's simple. Uh, it's got a wide gearing range. You don't have, you know, heavy crap on it. Like how you usually like to wreck bikes with heavy crap. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really wreck them too much. No, you don't. You don't. I'm pretty good at that. But yeah, like it, it just turned into like a nice, just do everything bike. Um, what else did I put on that thing? I think, oh, I had that Fox Zoki fork where I took some Z1 uppers and then put the, um, just a regular orange, um, 36 lowers on it. So just, just trolling things. Just yeah, trolling, just eh? <laughs> mix things and mix and match things. And, but it worked though. It ended up looking good because I had an orange you- fork with black. Are you trying to make people at both suspension companies angry? Is that what you're trying to do? (laughs) I guess it's the the same company, so. Well, yeah, they didn't, I don't think they minded too much. Like that way, theoretically, it should have been a little bit stiffer because of the thicker uh, stanchion walls, but I didn't notice any stiffness difference, but it just looked better. Yeah. 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 So that bike, that was a pretty fun bike. I liked that one. Um, But yeah, I wish Scott would just ditch Twinlock for almost everything except their World Cup XC bikes, but they're not going to do that. They're definitely not. That's their, that's their IP. They're going to stick with that for a long time, I think. But their new, yeah, that spark, they make an aluminum spark that looks really good with a shock hidden inside. And if I could figure something out. Did you, did you get that new spark yet? Is it It's on the way. I'm going to have it soon. Yeah. I'm excited to see that thing. Yeah, me too. But like I said, I'm not going to mess with the twin lock uh, for the first little bit, at least a day. I could see you liking that bike, Kaz. I looked at the Geo, and I feel like you could like that bike, and you could turn it into something really neat and unique. I think so, too. There's some things, yeah, I mean, once that review, once I ride the bike, actually, and see, there's some things that on paper look a little different to me, but we'll see what I can do with it. It's funny. Um, you haven't even got the bike yet, and we're just talking about changing it. <laughs> I know, because <laughs> I saw the pictures of the twin lock, but, like, <laughs> but in my mind, I made myself promise to not change it. It has integrated bar stem combo, too. That's another thing I took off of that ransom. It had the integrated Hickson bar stem oh. combo, mm-hmm. which wasn't bad. Like It was close, but I ended up wanting to try some high-rise bars or something else. So yeah. uh, in that case, you have to switch both things. So I like that Hickson setup, Kaz, but visually, it, it almost did mess with me a little bit. Like mm-hmm. looking, looking at it from when you're in the saddle, like your hands are where they're hundred percent supposed to be, but the handlebar isn't. <laughs> no. Yeah. And you can't, you can't adjust your roll, even though it's probably close, but yeah. So those kind of things are strange, but, um, yeah. So that was my, well, actually that was 20, what year was that? A couple of years ago, but now we should move into some of your stuff. You had a lot of weird little bikes. Like I remember the first time I met you, I think you had a Trek Superfly with 850 millimeter wide bars and the seat was like 20 feet in the air. And I think they I got long breaking. legs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think you're riding them how they were intended at that time. <laughs> no, I, so the Trek Superfly 100 was my introduction to 29ers, basically like 29ers that were starting to get pretty sorted. And I got that bike. We were at a press camp in Whistler. Um, and that thing has blew my mind. Hutter Mills, front and back, but lots of BB drop, lots of traction. And it basically, I mean, the thing was meant to be a cross-country race bike. To me, it felt like a cross-country play bike. I got on the thing and it was immediately like hopping around. And 
that experience on that bike, I think is why I'm so into short travel, playful, fun bikes these days. And to be fair, yeah, you said that bike is not designed to be ridden. I went through an, a, a couple of frames. <laughs> I've ended up breaking chain stays, seat stays, seat tube, down tube, and the top tube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it was being ridden very hard on all sorts of terrain that it never, ever should have saw. And the front end never came off. And I really enjoyed the handling. And after that, I moved to that Rocky Mountain Element Kaz, and I had a couple of those as well. Um, yeah, you didn't. You weren't a big fan of that bike. <laughs> the Element. I mean, I never really rid, rode it too much like that. I never you made a lot of fun of my Elements, Kaz. Well, yeah, when I saw you walking down Gargamel, I mean, you probably don't need to ride an Element on Gargamel, but I saw you walking. <laughs> I, I was like, "What are you doing? Why are you walking I rode, the bike in the woods?" <laughs> I rode the entire Gargamel, which is a super gnarly trail. I had a 100 millimeter RS1 inverted fork on the front, all of Gargamel except for the 30 feet that Casper saw me walking, <laughs> and I hear about it every fucking week. <laughs> <laughs> I turned around and I see him carrying his bike down the hill, one cross, cyclocross guy out there. I mean, yeah. it was, scary. I mean, I wouldn't have ridden it on that bike either. Like that. Yeah, I would never, I, th I remember cause we finished that ride and I took a week off riding because I was mentally frazzled. <laughs> like, yeah. I felt like I had a nervous breakdown. Yeah. That is one of those trails where a little extra travel can help out some better angles. Yeah. So. so those elements, they saw a ton of test parts, uh, DI2, MRP Fork. Actually, Kaz, that's that DI2 group that uh, Vernon Felton and I both tested and did side-by-side -side reviews that people really liked. Um, and oh, the yeah, MRP I had that DI2 and that Slash, too. Yep, It exactly. went through three of us. Yeah, that's where my, that DI2 unplugged inside the top tube, and then the battery is rattling, and I couldn't shift. And I got really Mine mad. Unplugged so I... <laughs> inside the down tube. <laughs> yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, my big complaint with that bike is fast, efficient, and I liked the Geo at the time. Those ABC pivots, they used bushings. Mine never wore out and rattled, but they were so difficult to work on. And obviously, Ride 9, no one needs nine different bike settings. It doesn't make that much of a difference, Rocky Mountain. Just give me like one or two Geo settings, or, or not even. Just leave it alone. But okay. <laughs> They were good. They never broke. And they were also ridden very hard. XC race bikes, no issues whatsoever. Yeah. Kaz, you just got yourself a new personal bike as well. Should we talk about that before we wrap this up? Yeah, I guess I kind of at the moment have two personal bikes. I've been riding that. I still have that Commonsell Meta TR. Um, I've had it. It's coming up on a year now and probably That's time to check the bearing. Time. But it's still going. I know it's a while, but it's been just a good, like solid testing platform so i think i've got domain on there some i test that gx axis drivetrain on it it's got some brake parts that aren't out yet some and then yeah i just got some wtb carbon wheels on there to test so it's always fun testing carbon wheels on a kind of stout aluminum bike just mm -hmm. feels even better when you smash them so um but yeah so that bike is kind of my go-to for rowdier stuff why why is that bike still around and why are you using it as your test sled for those things as opposed to some other bike why is uh, that one i just i kind of like the way it fits like it is just kind of feels right for a lot of a lot of things it's 140 160 but it can i can put some lighter parts if i need to test those or kind of burlier parts if i need to test those so kind of a good falls in the middle um you know i could put a 174 kind of if i needed to or 160 or 150 like it would work fine with all that and you know big brakes and it's 
Yeah, and the shock size is pretty normal. I think it's 210 by 55. So pretty easy to swap out shocks on that. So everything just makes it pretty easy to work on. It sounds like a solid level-headed decision that makes sense, Kaz. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, and, I can't and even make fun. Of, <laughs> I know. And it's like a kind of a longer front end and a shorter rear center. So something about it's super fun to ride. Like it jumps crazy well. And then in the steeps, it's like, I don't know, it's yeah. a fun little carvy bike. So yeah, I like, I don't know, I just like it. You are the one. I mean, it's, it's the next version of like that one we rode in Sedona two years ago. And so it's even better than that one. So I love that one we rode at Sedona. No frills. Yeah. It just works. Yeah, and, it just like smash things. Max, our video guy and the guy who edits this podcast also has one of those things and he mm -hmm. raves about it. So I think they just, they make a lot of sense. Yeah. Hey Kaz, why don't we wrap this up then with our personal bikes, which is the two bikes you just talked about. And then my personal mountain bike right now is a Mondraker Podium DC, which is a lot different than your commensal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we do. Have, yeah. We'll talk about my spur in a bit. That's probably closer yeah. to your, to your uh, Mondraker, but yeah, your Mondraker, what have you done with that recently? I don't think I've seen it since it was just a normal since the way it came well it's still largely i'm looking at it right now it's still largely the same so it's uh, a mountain bike tires on it yeah Gee, don't give everybody the wrong idea it still has mountain bike it's got 2.35 schwalbe hans dumps on it the best mountain bike oh, tires gross. no <laughs> you should get some wicked wheels they're lighter and better you should see casual yeah, size, everybody. yeah. <laughs> um, it's still basically the same the frame itself anyway, and it still has a 120 millimeter travel SID ultimate up front. Um, but I've changed a handful of other things on it. Uh, it's got a set of Synchros carbon one piece wheels on it right now that are absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I've actually installed a tire insert in the rear wheel after too many flat tires and I got super glue on my face because I didn't have any tire plugs anyways. <laughs> That's another story. Um, I love the fact that it's it is a bike that's all about efficiency. Like it just feels fast and that makes it playful. Like you don't even have to take a full pedal stroke, just like a stab on the pedals and you have enough speed to pop up and over everything. It's not perfect though, Kaz. Uh, I'm having some trouble with two things. One, it eats shock hardware. Like there's no tomorrow. And the bolt is like this like proprietary aluminum thing. Um, and then I wish it was a little more progressive. It's definitely linear. So I run less sag. I'm a little over 20% sag. Squamish is rough, man. You know this, rough and steep. So to keep me from smashing through that massive 100 millimeters of rear wheel travel, I have to run it pretty stiff, which only exaggerates that sort of, hey, I only got 100 millimeters of travel feeling. So yeah. It's definitely a bike that I ride a little on my tippy toes when I'm on some trails, uh, but I like to cover a lot of ground and yeah, it works for that. Nice. Yeah, I bet that thing's fun. I remember, yeah, it's super light, right? Do you know what it weighs? Oh, um, with pedals, I think it's right around 24-ish pounds. That's light. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty light. Kaz, you got a spur. Tell me about the spur, which is also a short travel bike, a bit more, but tell me about it. Yeah, yeah, so spur is 120, 120. Um, yeah, I just got it because I wanted, again, you know, one of those shorter travel play bikes. I'm, I like to mix it up. So longer rides, just on more natural terrain, not always just hucking and sending. But I want a bike that could do, you know, if I get it in over its head, it's not going to hold me back. So Spur has been good for that. Um, pretty progressive geometry for the XC trailish world. I think it's 66 head angle with a 124. fork. Um, and I built it up with a, yeah, solid, good build kit. It turned out pretty fancy. It might be the fanciest I bike I've ever did. owned. Yeah, I, I don't know. bet it did. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> it has Kank Creek titanium cranks on it. Those are fancy. They're anodized rainbow, of course. Um, 
Yeah, and I went with a analog drivetrain because I'm kind of not into batteries still. I just yeah, bad weird. at remembering, and yeah, so the cable works works well. Um, what else I do? I've got some of those new Revol carbon wheels that I'm testing. It's kind of like the not quite as light version of uh, that came out last year. So these have DT Swiss 350 hubs, yeah, and like 1450 grams or something. So pretty light, but not insanely yeah. light. Got the I have those control tires. 1200 gram one wheels. I was using them on the Mondraker actually and zero issues. Man, yeah, those things are impressive. They're pretty nice. And these ones, I think I've, I think the ones you tested maybe had 24 spokes. These have 28, 28 spokes seems a little better. So <laughs> a little <laughs> less twangy. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's uh, fair. Yeah. And I'm running like, yeah, this bike, I'm kind of, I don't have it built dumb in the fact, like I don't, I'm not running downhill tires on it or, you know, I have kind of like trail tires. I've got specialized ground control ones those just came out so testing those as well um if it got sloppier out i'd probably put it maybe a little meatier front tire but it's kind of dusty and hard back right now so those work pretty good yeah. for drifting around is there anything that you aren't a fan of when it comes with the spur you and i we both have spurs we both ride spurs we both love spurs what yeah is there anything we don't like about spurs um let's see i've had the main pivot come loose a little bit it's like a it's not the stiffest frame. And I think a lot of movement, that main pivot just, I don't know. I got to take a look at it. It started creaking the other day, but, um, that's more of like a maintenance thing. It's been super, like I said, super dry and dusty. So a little bit loose in the back end, but fixable, um, internal cable routing could be a little better for the dropper. I think that one doesn't have a, that, that runs through like a foam tube rather than a sleeve. Like it has partially sleeved internal routing for the, I think the derailleur goes through that, but not the dropper. So that can route a little bit. But, um, overall, yeah, it's pretty, pretty fun little bike and Ridiculous oh yeah, I put code, I put code brakes on mine because, um, because of course boring. you did. <laughs> yeah. Well, cause they're only 40 grams more than G2 and they work 400 times better than G2 brakes. So Kaz, I put my, uh, avid juicy ultimate code combo on the spur. <laughs> it's seven yeah, grams lighter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not like a real idiot. <laughs> yeah. So, but yes, yeah, so I have a 200 mil rotor up front 180 in the back so yeah i think it can stop but it's not like overkill it doesn't feel crazy like there's plenty of modulation for yeah. regular riding and i'm running a i guess i have mix mix match suspension mismatch that's a hard word to say mismatch suspension as far as brands go i got the new 34 up front um and then i have the um that sid lux rear shock i got to ride the new 34 a little bit ago i don't have one right now that new air spring, there's there's a noticeable difference there. I felt, Kaz. It's a good fork, yeah. For, especially for yeah. 120. Like I put it on at first. I put it on with 140 just because I uh, didn't have the 120 air spring yet, and it's kind of funny. Like I'm, I have nothing against over forking bikes and that type of thing, I but I know you do, and it's fine. But actually, the spur rides way better with a 120. So if people are wondering, like I'm gonna buy it and put a 140, it just doesn't. It loses the flavor of like that sportiness. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, now that then I did get the new air spring because it turns out that Fox, they made the 34 really good, but they made the air spring different than last year's. So you have to have a 2022 air spring to put in the oh. 2022 fork. It's not backwards compatible. So that threw me for a loop for a little bit until, but either way, now I got a 120, 34 on there. It works great. A grip two damper. Um, yeah, it's, it's super impressive. Nice. Like you don't hit bottom and in rough stuff, that bike has a nice, like for how little travel it has, you can definitely push it. So I like it. All right. And it's heavier than Let's, yours, though, by like three pounds. Yeah. It's probably a bit more <laughs> capable, too, though. You're probably less That's scared less often. <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, let's wrap this up with comment gold. Our first one, this is on that Fox Dropper patent article that Kazimer wrote. This is from PBA user Hamcheese. We see Hamcheese's comments all the time. He's a pretty amusing user. Uh, he says, uh, how high up does your dropper post have to be for it to read your heart rate? Our last comment gold, this is from Slowdown U. This is on the poll Viama? Vioma? Voma? Voima? I don't know. Voima press release? Slow down, you says, with this bike, you'll have the most twattage on the trail. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to be fair, Leo, he put himself out there in that video, and he definitely didn't have to. Um, and I mean, the, it's easy to make fun of the bike, but I bet this thing is pretty interesting to ride. So, all right. Kaz, that's it for episode 70, and I swear it's the last time. You'll have to listen to Kazmer and I talking about the good old days and yelling at clouds. We've got a handful of good episodes coming up, including the second part of my interview with the one and only RC, Richard Cunningham, and we'll see you next week. (laughs) 